Shortly after I came to Canada from the UK in 1990, I met another young Englishman who, like me, had come here to work as a physiotherapist. We quickly became good friends, to the point of even going away together on an all-inclusive vacation to the Caribbean. Through an unfortunate set of circumstances in which he thought I was trying to steal his girlfriend, which I hasten to add was completely unfounded, he chose to cut off the relationship, and I've heard nothing from him since. I was confused and disappointed at the time, and to this day, occasionally reflect on what might have been. Much more recently, I was deeply involved in a church leadership situation, in which a time of transition was marked by hope and excitement, only to come crashing down as a result of a difficult and painful case of relational breakdown among key leaders. The two people I worked with most closely and who were good friends were at the heart of the controversy. Both resigned, leaving me confused, stranded, and deeply disappointed. I could easily expand on my disappointments and losses, but I'm quite sure you could generate a list that equals or surpasses mine. Losing what we value and missing out what we desire is simply part of the warp and woof of our daily lives. Some of life's hardships are as trivial as stubbing our toes or losing our car keys, but others are more significant, such as aging and illness and the death of loved ones. Some reach incomprehensible proportions, such as the Nazi Holocaust or the Rwandan genocide. While no season of our lives is exempt, we're currently experiencing what George called last week a little ice age. And most of us have experienced some form of disorientation and loss during the last six months. Among other things, I miss water cooler conversations with colleagues, in-person meetings, the classroom, and unhindered access to public spaces without having to don a mask or speak through a plexiglass screen. Some report being unscathed, but for others, this little ice age has been profoundly challenging. Maybe you lost a job, taken a big financial hit, lost loved ones to the virus, or are struggling with feelings of isolation. Maybe your depression has returned, or your wedding was canceled and you lost your $10,000 deposit on the facility. Yes, I've heard of that happening and I'm sensitive to the issue because my daughter's planning to get married next summer. If nothing else, you almost certainly have Zoom fatigue and possibly some technology anxiety. So what are we to do with all of this loss and pain? Among the multitude of responses, the following are not uncommon. Many times we turn to distractions to numb the pain. If you're like me, that might involve playing games on your phone or watching the latest series on Netflix. Although for one friend of mine, it has meant slipping back into an alcohol addiction in order to deal with life's stresses. Some soldier on as if there were no problem, but I suspect that comes at the price of being out of touch emotionally with themselves and with others. 
Alternatively, we resort to chronic complaining, whereby life is defined by everything that is wrong with the world, and we become obsessed with pointing the finger of blame. Sometimes, we're just paralyzed in a state of inactivity and anxiety, overwhelmed and unable to move forward in a constructive manner. Some seek more practical solutions, and yet others get needed and valuable help from professional counselors. No doubt many other responses could be added, both healthy and unhealthy, but what I want to talk about briefly today is one way of responding to our loss and our pain that is strongly suggested to us by the scriptures and especially the Psalms, namely the prayer of lament. As an example of such a prayer, let me begin by reading Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. In part, I chose this psalm because I've often used it in my own prayers on account of identifying with the profound sense of disconnection that the psalmist is evidently experiencing in his relationship with Yahweh. At the same time, this is one of multiple lament psalms that I could have chosen for today. Scholars don't agree on the precise number, but estimates run as high as almost 50%, with approximately 50 individual psalms of lament and 20 communal ones. The exact number, however, matters less than the straightforward phenomenon of their frequency, which outstrips even psalms of praise. The laments covered a wide range of negative human emotions and experiences, although to catalog such things as if to try and decide what constitutes a legitimate lament is, I suspect, to miss the point. As a collection of prayers, I take it for granted that the Psalms provide models for us to emulate. But when we take seriously the volume and the diversity of the lament Psalms, I wonder if we're fully hearing their invitation. I don't know about you, but in the worship services that I attend, there's no question that songs of praise far outweigh expressions of lament. Perhaps the most obvious occasion to expect a lament is a funeral. And yet, in a fascinating and documented trend, these are increasingly being replaced with celebration of life services. Stop for a moment and ponder the irony of that title. In stark contrast, when my Hindu neighbor lost her elderly mother last year, friends and family gathered in a house every, two night, every, every night for two weeks to be led in a dedicated process of mourning by their priest. Now, there's nothing wrong with celebrating the memory of a life well-lived or in seeking ways to positively frame our various negative experiences. 
But when it comes at the loss of private and public lament, we've lost touch with something of what it means to be human. In relation to this, and as far back as 1986, the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann wrote a justly famous article about the costly loss of lament. One such loss involves silencing real-life justice questions. Persecution is seen as inevitable or even a badge of honor, and protests about injustice are replaced by silence in the name of submissive faith. Another loss involves stifling our honest and unfiltered questions about God. Like Paul, we strive to be content in all circumstances, but in doing so, we run the risk of silencing the voices of disappointment, despair, and even rage. If the Psalms of Lament are taken seriously, such silence must be called into question, since refusing their invitation is surely the first step to dehumanizing ourselves and others. In fact, there's an interesting analogy here to marriage. One couple who are trained experts in the field put it this way, and I quote, airing a complaint, though rarely pleasant, makes the marriage stronger in the long run because suppressing, in the long run than suppressing the complaint. The absence of fights does not augur well for most marriages. Couples who do not make an issue of things often resort to anger substitutes rather than dealing directly with their emotions. They will overeat, get depressed, gossip, or suffer physical illness. While these substitutes may be more socially acceptable than the direct expression of anger, they can result in what experts call a devitalized marriage, where false intimacy is the most that couples can hope for. Conflict is natural in intimate relationships. Once this is understood, conflict no longer represents a crisis, but an opportunity for growth. Now, this, of course, is not a recipe for flying off the handle at your spouse, and they are careful to distinguish in the book between healthy and unhealthy ways of handling conflict. But my wife, Sheila, and I can personally testify to the truthfulness of this couple's claim. We just celebrated our 24th wedding anniversary, and if there was one thing, one negative trait that has characterized our marriage, it's been the tendency to avoid conflict. More often than we would like to admit, the relative peace in our home was not the result of hard-earned intimacy, having worked through the challenges and airing our complaints. Rather, it resulted from being out of touch with ourselves and brushing those complaints under the carpet. The Psalms of Lament suggest a direct parallel in our relationship with God, both individually and corporately. In fact, the ready compliance and the superficial politeness of our prayers and liturgies, in face of that, the Psalms of Lament invite us to honest and raw encounters that are vital to our spiritual health. With this in mind, I want to make just a few brief observations about Psalm 13 that I think may be helpful in thinking about our own laments. First, and in keeping with what I've already said, the psalmist is radically honest about his complaint. He's not concerned with theological correctness, but simply gets straight to the point of feeling abandoned by God. How long, O oh Lord? Will you forget me forever? 
Similar gut-wrenching cries are repeated throughout the Lament Psalms, although the precise circumstances that give rise to those complaints are often missing. I believe that this invites us to honest self-awareness and to fill the gap of missing information with our own stories. A second thing to note is that lament is not voiced into thin air, but is addressed directly to God. Whether communal or individual, lament is not a gossip session with a friend or an impersonal rant at no one in particular. It is a complaint directed to God in the context of a covenant relationship. In other words, lament is not simply letting off steam. It's letting off steam at God in the form of prayer. Third, in the course of lamenting, the psalmist not only complains to God, but assumes that God can do something about it. In verse 3, he says, Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. God may be a bystander in the psalmist's eyes, but he is not an innocent, disinterested, or impotent bystander. Otherwise, there would be no point to the petition. God may seldom respond to us in the way we expect or hope. Just read the book of Job. But he is never ultimately disinterested, impotent, or uninvested. The light at the end of the tunnel may appear to extinguish at times, but it is precisely the nature of lament-style faith to hope against hope, because the God in whom we hope is ultimately faithful to his covenant. This leads directly to my fourth observation, namely that the psalmists break through to a new experience of trust and hope, either having experienced deliverance or on account of anticipating such deliverance. The author of Psalm 13 concludes by saying, I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. These words are not spoken from behind gritted teeth or from a hollow heart that is out of touch with its own pain. The opening complaint has already indicated that anything less than brutal honesty is ill-fitted to genuine encounters with God. No, there has been a transformation for the psalmist. As Walter Brueckemann describes it, he has moved from disorientation to new orientation. This is the stuff of authentic faith. But despite all of this language of trust and hope, I have one final observation, which I believe would be pastorally negligent to omit from any consideration of the lament psalms. That is, the lament is no quick fix or a formula to move us mechanically from despair to rejoicing at any chosen moment. For one thing, we have no idea of the time frame involved in the movement from disorientation to new orientation in any given psalm. Instantaneous transformation certainly happens, but more often than not, it involves days, weeks, months, even years. In at least one case, namely Psalm 88, 
the psalmist never actually arrives at new orientation. And after 18 verses of anguished cries, the concluding verse simply reads, you have caused friend and neighbor to shun me. My companions are in darkness. But even in this desperate case, I don't think hope has been fully extinguished. For if that was so, I'm not sure the psalmist would still be addressing God directly. Even if he doesn't say it out loud, a little wisp of hope seems to remain behind the cries of pain. I have no idea what you're going through at this moment, but if you have any sense of the spirit stirring in your heart, let me suggest at least a couple of things. First, take some time in the next few days and just write out a list of complaints and losses. And then, with the Psalms as a model, craft them into your own lament prayer to be read aloud to God. Obviously, there's much more that could be said about the lament Psalms, but I want to conclude this time together this morning simply by giving expression to some of our community pain in a lament that I have crafted for this occasion. So let us pray. Lord, we come to you today disoriented. You are the creator who looked upon your magnificent masterpiece and proudly announced, this indeed is very good. And yet, Lord, goodness seems such an evasive quality at times. Sadness, confusion, and disappointment are more often our lot. Joy and peace are but elusive shadows in the trenches of the real world. Help us, Lord. Help us not to numb the pain with the myriad of unhealthy options that our comfort-driven society holds before us. Help us to face ourselves and others with the honesty that ultimate and genuine joy demands. Today, Lord, we're going to be honest with our complaints, the small and the big and everything in between. We are tired of screens and masks, of distance and disorder, of isolation and uncertainty. We want to get back to the way life was. Our pocketbooks are suffering, our marriages are struggling, and we're deeply concerned about the future and all the while swamped in the present. Our future is less predictable and we are overwhelmed with decisions in the new normal. We've lost jobs and loved ones, and for some of us, the virus poses a serious threat to our own health. Our world, Lord, is full of strife and hatred, of greed and injustice. We face death and despair. We face psychological disorders beyond repair. Alzheimer's and cancer, political scandals and warfare. Such, it seems, is the human plight. And now, Lord, this, a pandemic with no end in sight. 
Is it really true, Lord, that you are good? Or is it simply that we have misunderstood? Yes, we want answers, Lord. And yes, we want change. But we know that our deepest need is a fresh encounter with you. It is for that that we yearn and we cry out aloud. Give us eyes to behold and a new sense of faith. Surely you can carry us, your love can carry us through this day. We know that your covenant and commitment are true. We're just struggling to see it in the chaos of this zoo. Please come and sustain us and walk by our side, for we're desperate and needy. And after all, we are your bride. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our plea. May our laments and our petitions bring us face to face with thee.